and let's get into the Word of God. Lord, we ask that you would come down in a special way, in a sense that we can perceive your presence among us working in our hearts and minds. We pray, Lord, for an illumination of your word. We pray, Father, that we would understand better your glory and experience it more deeply in our lives and love it and that it would become the master passion of all, of what we do and what we think and what we say. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, we're coming to our final study in the series on the attributes of God. And I asked Ola to look it up this morning, and this turns out to be our 19th study on the attributes of God. We're going to, what I've done is I've saved the best for last. Because we're going to be talking about the glory of God today. And I realize that the glory of God is probably sounds very vague and difficult to understand, right? It's, it's, it's not an easy concept for us to understand. What is the glory of God? Well, it's a lot like the word beauty. If I were to try to define the word beauty to someone who's never heard of that word, it might be difficult for them to grasp, and it would be difficult for me to communicate what I mean by beauty. But if I took the word watermelon, I think that would be a lot easier. I could say, okay, well, a watermelon is a piece of fruit, and it's pretty big, maybe one to two feet long, usually kind of oblong. It's green on the outside, sometimes with stripes. You open it up, and it's got this red fruit, and the fruit's sweet and juicy and delicious. And by the time I'm done describing it, they would have a pretty good idea of what I meant by watermelon. But if I just said beauty to someone who'd never heard of that word, boy, that, that's a hard concept to grasp, and glory is kind of like that. Um, let me make an attempt at defining God's glory before we even get into our study. My attempt is this. God's glory is not a single attribute. It's all of his attributes rolled up into one. It's the sum total of all of his attributes that he puts on display. It's the beauty and the radiance of his manifold perfections. And sometimes in the Bible... The name of God is used practically synonymous with the glory of God. The name of God, the glory of God. Because the name of God speaks of who God is and all of his perfections, which is exactly what we mean by the glory of God. It's who God is and all of his perfections. And so the goal of doing something for God's glory and the goal of doing something for God's name are the same goal. So keep that in mind as we go through the scriptures because we're going to see some scriptures that talk about God doing something for his namesake and other times the scripture will say that God does this for his glory. They're talking about the same idea. Now why do I believe that the glory of God refers to the sum total of all of God's attributes and perfections? So let me show you why. I get, I get that from Exodus chapter 33 and 34. So let's look at that. Exodus 33... Verse 18 and 19. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. 
And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. So Moses prays, Lord, show me your glory. And God says, I myself will make all my glory. No, he doesn't say that. He says, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. You want to see my glory? Okay, I'll make my goodness pass before you. And I'll proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I'll show compassion on whom I will show compassion. And then in chapter 34, verse 6, it says, the Lord passed by in front of him. Remember, Moses said, show me your glory, and now God's going to show him his glory. The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. So do you see what's going on here? Moses asks to see God's glory and God gives him a glimpse, glimpse of his glory by proclaiming something. He proclaims his name. He proclaims his goodness, his graciousness, his compassion, his truth, his loving kindness, his forgiveness, and also his justice. He said he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He proclaims all of who he is to Moses, and by doing that, he is showing him his glory. So now, do you, do you see why I say the glory of God is the sum total of who God is and all of his perfections revealed to man? So now we've caught a glimpse of what God's glory is. I just want to make one single point in this sermon. One point, and that one point is this, the display of God's glory is God's ultimate purpose in everything that he does. The display of his glory is God's ultimate purpose in everything he does. And I want to show you that by going through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, giving you a survey of Scripture, and showing you passage after passage after passage that God is radically committed to displaying his glory. You know, we all have things that we're passionate about, right? If you get to know people, you find out, yeah, there's, there's a passion in their life about something. I've got an uncle, and whenever I go on Facebook, I always know that whatever he posts is going to be about him hiking in the outdoors somewhere. <laughs> He's always outdoors hiking. And I just know that when I look at any post, it's going to be about that. Um, other people, they're passionate about the Giants or the 49ers or the A's, or whoever it is, they're their favorite sports team. And some people are passionate about music, some about art, some about wealth and becoming rich, some about ending abortion, or ending racial injustice, or finding a cure for cancer, or ministering to widows and orphans. And the list goes on. I mean, you just, it, there are as many passions practically as there are people, it seems. But the question I want you to think about this morning is, what is God passionate about? We all have our various passions. What's His? What's the master passion of the Creator? I would say this about God. God is uppermost in God's own affections. God loves himself and he loves his glory supremely. 
Now that's going to sound odd to you probably, but I just want you to hang with me on this until we get to the end of the message. The Westminster Confession of Faith, the shorter catechism that was uh, produced by the Reformed churches in the 1600s, it asked the question, the very first question, what is the chief end of man? And we know the answer. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So let's ask another question related to that. What is the chief end of God? My answer to that would be the chief end of God is to glorify Himself and enjoy Himself forever. This morning, let's go back to creation and let's work our way through the Bible and let's see God's master passion. Let's see what He is radically committed to above all else so that we can get to really know the God who made us and saved us. So first of all, we're going to go through nine different categories of things that God has done. The first one is creation. And in Isaiah 43, 6 and 7, we have this written by the prophet. He said, bring my sons from afar. Here's God speaking. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who's called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. So why did God create his sons and his daughters that he's bringing from afar, according to this text? He created them for his glory. That's why. So God's aim in creation, according to this text, was his own glory. That's why he created everyone who is called by his name. And we can make a mistake here if we're not careful. We can think that God created people because he lacked glory and in order to bolster up the glory that he didn't have, he created people to bring him the glory that he needed and we'd make a grave mistake there because God has been infinitely glorious from ever because he's never had a beginning. He always was infinitely perfect in all of his attributes. So his glory does not need to be level, erased or heightened by us. But what God delights in doing is demonstrating or displaying the glory that he already possesses. Because Acts 17.25 says, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. So God created not to gain glory, but to display his own glory to man. God wants to put the glory that he possesses on display and demonstrate it to his creation. Think about the universe and especially this world as a theater upon which God presents to us his glory. And the more we have spiritual eyes, we're going to see His glory in, in all kinds of places. I see His glory when I look at these YouTube documentaries on animals. I tell you, every time I see one, look at the, YouTube, the latest YouTube video on BBC Earth on the cuttlefish. The cuttlefish, it's not even a fish, it looks like a squid, but this fish swallows uh, crabs whole. <laughs> it just goes and it sucks them inside of itself and in order to get these crabs this cuttlefish can change color it like it becomes like a, a a light bulb that changes colors like a disco thing <laughs> and it mesmerizes and hypnotizes the crabs so they just kind of look at it until they're sucked into it I think God you are so amazing in your power and your your wisdom and your creativity to create all these different creatures it just blows my mind that's just one little example 
So, God in creation puts on display His glory. Okay, secondly, the exodus out of Egypt. Let's talk about that for a minute. We find in Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, God giving the reason why He was going to deliver His people from Egypt and why He was not going to destroy the Pharaoh and his armies immediately. Okay, Exodus 9, 16. But indeed, for this reason I have allowed you to remain, he's talking to Pharaoh, in order to show my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. So God could have just made short work of Pharaoh and his armies. In one swift judgment they would be annihilated. But he decided that he wasn't going to do that. He allowed Pharaoh and his armies to remain. Why? To show his power. And to proclaim his name through all the earth. It was important to God to demonstrate his power and his name. Remember his name is synonymous with his glory. To display his glory in all the earth. God was wanting to put the fame of his reputation on display to the world. We also find this, a similar idea in Exodus 14 verses 4 and 17. God says, Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And they did so. As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. He's talking about going into the Red Sea after the Israelite armies. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army through his chariots and his horsemen. So why did God harden Pharaoh's heart according to God? You know, we all have our theories and ideas of why God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, God tells us why he did it. He did that so that he would be honored and that's why, and that the Egyptians would know that he is the Lord. We also find something similar in Psalm 106, verse 7 and 8. It says, Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember your abundant kindnesses but rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for the sake of his name, that he might make his power known. Very same thing. The children of Israel were rebelling at the Red Sea. They didn't have this great faith. But God, in spite of their lack of faithfulness, decided to save them. Why? For the sake of his name, that he might make his power known. God's wanting to put his glory on display to his people. You might think he would say, well, I saved you for your sake because I loved you so much, because you were the apple of my eye. But he, it's interesting. If you just read the Bible through, you find so many statements like this one that God's doing it not for their sake, but for his own sake, for the sake of his own name. Isaiah 63, verse 11 and 12. Then his people remembered the days of old of Moses, where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them? Who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses? Who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name? That's why God was doing that. That's why he opened the Red Sea and saved his people and destroyed the Egyptians. He was doing it to make for himself an everlasting name. That speaks about his fame and his reputation and his glory. God wants his creation to know who he is. Let's talk about the wilderness wandering for a few minutes. We find a statement in Ezekiel chapter 20, 
verses 21 and 22. But the children rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes, nor were they careful to observe my ordinances, by which if a man observes them, he will live. They profaned my Sabbaths. So, I resolved to pour out my wrath on them. He's talking about Israel here. God resolved to pour out His wrath on Israel to accomplish my anger against them in the wilderness. But I withdrew my hand and acted, not for their sake, it says, I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. God didn't want his name to be profaned by all of the Gentile nations that would see, oh, God's powerless, he's weak, he can't even sustain his own people in the wilderness. Look, they're destroyed, they're annihilated, this is some weak God. God wanted his name not to be profaned. And so he acted for that, for that reason. How about if we go further in the Old Testament and we find the example of the children of Israel asking for a king. And remember, this was a sin. They had rejected God from being king over them and they wanted an earthly, a human king, just like all the other nations around them. They were going, basically this is worldliness, they're copying the things of the world rather than what God had already told them. But let's notice this, it's 1 Samuel chapter 12, verses 19 to 22. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart, and do not turn aside and after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Now they should have been cut off because of this great evil, this great sin that they had done by rejecting God as king and asking for a human king. And God says, no, I'm not going to forsake you. I'm not going to reject you. It's not for your sake that I'm not going to do it. It's for my own sake, for the sake of my great name, he says. And because I made you a people for myself. That's why. So God has this unswerving commitment to his own name. The rock bottom foundation of our confidence that God will not forsake us is his commitment to glorify his name. That's at the bottom of our confidence that God will never forsake us. God possessed Israel in such a way that what happened to them reflected upon his name. His name was at stake in their destiny and that's why he would never forsake them because his name was attached to them. And his name is attached to you if you're a child of God. If you are in Christ, God's reputation is attached to your destiny. And that's at the rock bottom foundation of your confidence this morning. Let's go further in the Old Testament to a time in the late 700s BC. The nation of Israel has already been divided into two. You've got the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was in danger of being attacked by Sennacherib who was the king of the Assyrians and they, they were brutal, they were ruthless. I won't go into detail of the kinds of things they would do but it was horrific. 
they, they would put fear into the hearts of, of any person who knew what the Assyrians were like. They came against Judah and they were going to attack Judah. And Hezekiah, the king of Judah, prayed for deliverance. And God answered his prayer by sending an angel of the Lord who went out and struck 185,000 of the army of the Assyrians in one night, killed them. Can you imagine 185,000 soldiers dead in one night? Now the question is, why did God defend the city of Jerusalem to save it? We have the answer in 2 Kings 19 verse 34. For I will defend this city to save it, for my own sake and for my servant David's sake that's why it was for his own sake and for his servant David's sake that's why he defended the city what about the exile into Assyria and Babylon and then God's promised restoration out of it what do we read about that well Ezekiel 36 22 to 24 Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. So God tells them why he's going to restore them back to their land. It was for the holiness of his great name. It was not for their sake, but for his own sake, for his own holy name that he was about to act. Or Ezekiel chapter 39 verse 25. Therefore thus says the Lord God, Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob, and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. Do you start to see a pattern <laughs> where God tells you why he does what he does? And it's for his own sake, his own holy name, to vindicate his holiness, to spread his fame and his reputation and display himself throughout the world. Let's look at some of the testimonies of the various prophets in the Old Testament. First of all, the testimony of Isaiah in Isaiah 60, verse 21. Isaiah 60, verse 21. Then all your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. So why is it that God was going to make his people righteous, give them back their land forever, plant them back in their own land? He tells us, it's so that I may be glorified, he says. That's what God was radically committed to, glorifying his own self. Or let's Look at Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 11. Jeremiah 13, 11. For as the waistband clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole household of Israel and the whole household of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people for renown, for praise, and for glory. You see it again. He said, just like a waistband clings to the waist, so I made you, the household of Israel and the household of Judah, 
all of you, my people, I made you cling to me. The reason I did that is that you might be for me a people for renown. Well, who's renown? God's renown, right? For praise, for God's praise, for glory, for God's glory. God did this to bring glory to his own great name. Or let's go further in Jeremiah to chapter 33, verses 8 and 9. God says, I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned against me. And by which they have transgressed against me. It will be to me a name of joy, praise, and glory. Before all the nations of the earth which will hear of all the good that I do for them. And they will fear and tremble because of all the good and all the peace that I make for it. So God again is displaying himself to all the surrounding nations that were around Israel and he says he's going to do this by forgiving their transgressions he's going to do that so that it would be a name of joy praise and glory to the Lord now we've seen passage after passage in the Old Testament let's flip over to the New Testament and let's look at the testimony of Jesus Christ we'll start in John chapter 12 verse 27 and 28 John 12, 27. Jesus said, Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Now let's think through this. Jesus soul was troubled. Why do you suppose his soul was troubled at this point? Can you guess? The cross loomed just a few days ahead of him. He knows he's going to the cross. It, it's kind of like a, a portend of Gethsemane where he, his soul was deeply troubled, anguished to the point of death, he says. So his soul is troubled thinking of bearing the wrath of God against sin, being separated from his father. We can't even comprehend what that would have been like. It's impossible for us. But he, his soul is troubled as he thinks about it. And so he says, Lord, should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? But I can't do that because for this purpose I came to this hour. It was, it was, for this very purpose I came to lay down my life to save sinners. But here's the question. Why did Jesus come to lay down his life to save sinners? So that the Father would be glorified. That's why he did it. Because he says, Father, glorify your name. I'm not going to pray that you would save me from this hour. What I am going to pray is that, Father, that your name would be glorified. And God responds to him, I have both glorified it throughout history. From creation on, I've been glorifying my name and I'm going to do it again and I'm going to do it supremely through your death, burial, and resurrection. Or how about John 17 verse 4? Jesus there is in the garden praying the night before he's going to the cross. He says, To the Father, I glorified you on the earth having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. So here's the question, why did Jesus accomplish the work the Father gave him to do? So that he would glorify the Father. It was Jesus' master passion to glorify his Father. 
And that's why he accomplished God's work. That's why he fulfilled it. That's why he, he went all the way through the cross when in his humanity he, sh he, he shrank in, ho in horror and fear and trembling before what he knew was coming. But his master passion was the glory of God. What about the apostles? Let's turn to the testimony of the apostles and see what they have to say about this. We find in Acts chapter 15, verse 14, remember when the Jerusalem council met and they're trying to decide what about Gentiles that have not been circumcised? Should they be allowed right into the church? And so they're discussing this and Acts 15, 14. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people. Why? For his name. That's why he took a people. It was for his name. Or Romans 1 verse 5. Just a quick sampling of apostolic testimony. Romans 1 5. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. Why? For his name's sake. That's why. It's for God's name's sake that the Lord raised up these apostles and gave them grace. They were to bring about the obedience of faith. Why? For the namesake of God Almighty. Or how about 2 Corinthians 4 verse 15. For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Why does God cause His grace to spread to more and more people? So that the giving of thanks may be abound to the glory of God. That's the bottom line. And we can, if we had time, we could do a deeper study of Ephesians. Pastor Jerome's already done this, so I, we don't need to, but Ephesians 1 really helps us in this light. I'll just pull out a few verses from Ephesians 1. Verse 5 and 6. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ and Himself according to the kind intention of His will. Why? To the praise of the glory of His grace which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. God predestined you to adoption as a son or a daughter through Jesus Christ to Himself according to His will. Why? It was to the praise of the glory of His grace. God wants His grace to be glorified. And that's why He poured it out on you and He predestined you to sonship. Or Ephesians 1, 11 and 12. We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. So that's why God predestined us and gave us an inheritance after the counsel of His will. It was to the praise of His glory. Or Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. Now, verses 5 and 6 have to do with what God the Father did. 
God the Father predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And he did that to the praise of his glory, the glory of his grace. Then we have what Jesus Christ did. Verse uh, 7 through 12. And at the end of that section, again, we read that this all took place to the praise of his glory. And then in verses 13 and 14, we have the work of the Holy Spirit, the Father, Son, and Spirit, all working together jointly to bring about the salvation of his people. And there we find that the Holy Spirit has come in and sealed us. And all of that was done to the praise of his glory. I hate to burst your bubble, but God's ultimate purpose was not you. You're not the center of the universe. God himself is the center of his own universe. I hope that doesn't cripple your ego or something, but that is just the, the truth of the scriptures. God is the center of all things. We surround him. He's the sun. We're like the planets. Never, never get to that point where you're, you're doting on yourself and thinking, well, God makes make, make so much of me. Well, yes, he does. He loves you. He loves you greatly. But at the bottom of all of that, the, the foundation of all of that is revealing of his own glory. Let's look at Colossians 1.16. For by him, that is Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Everything that was created was created for Christ. What about 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 10? It says, When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. What's God's aim in the second coming of Jesus Christ? It's for Christ to be glorified in his saints and marveled at among all who have believed. Okay, 1 John 2, 12. 1 John 2, verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you, not for your sake. He says, for his namesake. That's why he's forgiven you your sins. It was for his namesake. And let's cap off this discussion with Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. You were created for God's pleasure. If you're not bringing God pleasure, you're not fulfilling the reason for your existence. Everything comes back to, is my life bringing pleasure to the God who made me and the God who redeemed me? That's what counts. That's what God's after. All things were created for thy pleasure. Now let's wrap all of this up. We've seen scripture from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. We've seen God's ultimate purpose in all that he does. And the first thing that I think is probably coming out of some of your minds is, you know, wait a minute. 
this can't be right. It doesn't sound right to me. Because this sounds like God is all about himself and not for us. And he's told us in the Bible, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But it sounds like God is selfish and God is conceited. Right? I mean, do you have those things that go through your mind when you read these scriptures? I do. I think about those things. And I have to try to work through it. Why would God want all creation to exalt Him? Okay, ask yourself this question. What's the essence of righteousness? The, 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 if you boil it down, what's the essence of righteousness? And I would say this. It's to value what is supremely valuable. That's righteous. If I make the accumulation of money my ultimate goal in life, well, the accumulation of money is not ultimately valuable. It carries some value in earth. While I'm here on the earth, I can do things with it, but it's not supremely valuable. But if I were to live for God, that would be righteous. It would be unrighteous for me to live for the accumulation of wealth. But it is not sin. It is righteous for me to live for the pleasure of God because God is supremely valuable. I would be esteeming what is supremely valuable by living for God in His glory. And my conclusion is this. God must love Himself infinitely in order to be righteous. God is righteous. That's part of His very nature. That's the core of His being. And because He is righteous, He has to value what is supremely valuable. If He valued something else more than Himself, God would not be righteous. He would have become an idolater he would be lifting up something above himself which he cannot do because there's nothing more valuable in all the universe than him. So he would be sinning to put us up above himself. And God cannot sin. He just can't do it. So God must love and delight in his beauty and perfection above all things. And that's why he takes pleasure in displaying his glory in all of his created universe. Now, I want you to think about this, this axiom, this truth, that what God is ultimately committed to above all else is to display His glory. Think about how that would impact your own life. And I think it could impact our life in at least two ways. I'm going to leave you with these two thoughts. It, could, it should impact the way you pray. It should impact the way you pray. And why do I say that? Let me just read some scriptures of the way people in the Bible prayed. For example, Psalm 25, 11. For thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Well, isn't that interesting? He doesn't say, for my own sake, Lord, pardon my iniquity. He says, for thy name's sake, pardon my iniquity. Or Psalm 79, verse 9. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of thy name, and deliver us and forgive our sins for thy name's sake. Do you see how the, the authors of Scripture, when they recorded prayers, the motive for their prayer was not for themselves, it was for God's glory. How about Daniel 9, verse 19? O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action. For thine own sake, O oh my God, do not delay, because thy city and thy people are called by thy name. So do it for thine own sake, Lord. 
Joshua 7, verses 8 and 9. O Lord, what can I say, since Israel has turned their back before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, and they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Have you ever prayed like this? I think we should learn how to do this. When we go to the Lord, let's take biblical motives with us. Let's say, Lord, do this or that for your great name. For your namesake, Lord, cut off your enemies, save your people. And, and if you can't pray the petition that's on your heart, believing that it's for God's namesake or for God's glory, then perhaps that's a prayer that you shouldn't be praying. Because that's what God is interested in. That's his radical passion. So the first way we can apply all of this is to the way we pray. Secondly, we can apply it to the way we live. If the glory of God is what God passionately pursues in all that he does, this needs to become the passion of the believer. That we would glorify God in all that we do and how we live. And of course, that's exactly what we find in the New Testament. For example, in 1 Corinthians 10.31, the Apostle Paul writes, whether then you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So, you know, we can get caught up in having all these rules. Well, I sh should I do this or that? Or I don't know if I, that, I should be doing that. Yeah, I should be doing this. Just forget all of that. Think about one question. Can I do this to the glory of God? If you can do it to the glory of God, you're safe. You're fine. <laughs> you, you don't have to sift it through 10,000 different rules in your head. That's the one. Now in context, he was talking about eating meat sacrificed to idols in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. And so he says, whether you eat or drink, he's talking about eating or drinking things sacrificed to idols. But he's talking about the mundane things of life. Can you... Can you say when you eat or drink that you're doing that to the glory of God? When you refrain from drinking alcohol in the presence of a believer who might be stumbled, you're, you're refraining from drinking to the glory of God in that case. Or when you enjoy something that God has provided you, giving thanks to Him and, and sharing your thankful heart with the Lord, you, you can do that to the glory of God. And, but it doesn't only consist, right, of eating and drinking. He says, whatever you do. So this is all of life. This is playing with your kids. This is taking your wife on a date night. This is speaking the gospel to your neighbor. This is opening up your wallet and helping someone who needs help. This is going and serving someone who's sick and needs some, some soup next door. Um, this, this is laying down your life for somebody that you work next to. This is sacrificing yourself for the sake of somebody else. Do all that you do to the glory of God. God does all that he does for his own glory. Well, if you want to be in sync with God, do all that you do for his glory. And you're going to find that wonderful meshing of, of two lives connected in the same passion. 1 Peter 4 verse 11. Look at how Peter writes about this. He says, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. Well, why? 
Why is the one who speaks supposed to speak God's utterances and the one who serves supposed to doing it by God's strength? He tells us, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, different Christians have different gifts. Some have speaking gifts, some have serving gifts. God has called some to teach and preach the word. God has called some to be behind the scenes. And they're just comfortable and delight in, in doing little acts of service. Whatever, the, whatever way God has made you and gifted you, whether it's in speaking gifts or serving gifts, do it so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. So my friends, I just want to encourage you let this become the master passion of your life, if it's not already. Yes, we want our children to become believers. We want our churches to grow and multiply. We want our marriages to be strong and healthy. We want our businesses to prosper. But why? Why do we want all those things? So that in all things God might be glorified. We aren't acting as we ought when we're moved by other motives. So I want this ambition to fire our souls this, mo this morning and let it be the foundation of everything that we embark upon, that it becomes a master passion of our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we are told in your word that the preaching of the word is for rebuke and for correction. And Lord, insofar that there are areas of our life where we have wrong motivations. I'm sure there are. Please, reveal those to us and bring your word of correction, Lord, your rebuke to our hearts. That we might repent. And that, Lord, we would become centered again and find the correct focus for our heart and our, the reason for why we do what we do to be your glory, Lord. It's exciting, Lord, to think of heaven and forever getting to know you and getting to know your glory and seeing it with a different shade or hue for all eternity, just enjoying that, being enthralled with the glory of our Creator. May we embark on that enjoyment now, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.